Hey, I'm Pastor Paul Watson, and you're listening to the official podcast of the Downtown Vineyard Church. At DTV Church, we're followers of Jesus, and we believe that relationships are holy and that God loves everyone. We are so excited that you're a part of our online community of faith, and from wherever you're listening, I hope you are blessed by this message this week. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm so excited to be with you this morning. I don't get to come to the 11 very often. And what Missy and Brandy said, you guys have so much more energy than the 9 o'clock service. I love it. Um, And can I just say, I said this at first, second service just as true. The ad of the violinist back here, amazing. Such a stroke of genius. (laughs) Um, Again, if you don't know me, my name's Stephanie. I'm up here to read out of the book of Revelations. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses starting in verse 8. So if you have your devices or your Bibles with you, if you want to turn there with me, um, we're going to read out of that. My husband and I, I'm supposed to introduce him. I didn't first service because I forgot to. (laughs) But we've been coming here for a little over six years. We love this church. We're not part of any one ministry. I help with ministry team. We also help with the foundation classes on Tuesday. My husband, you'll find him bopping around helping with everything from, you know, kids sometimes to shoveling water off the front patio. So we just, we love this church and this community. So starting in Revelations chapter 1, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the spirit. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast, and it said, Write a book, everything you see. And send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest, his head And his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampposts. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There is a battle coming. The war has already begun. It is raged unseen for millennia, 
And though we often struggle to see the conflict for what it really is, all of us can feel its effects. We wrestle with the powers of sin and death on a daily basis, and sometimes, in our darkest moments, it can feel like we're losing. But the word of the Lord tells a different story. Hope echoes throughout the pages of Scripture. Despite the mystery that surrounds it, the book of Revelation offers the people of God a clear message. Fear not tomorrow. Tomorrow is one. All right, good morning. Good morning. So over the next 11 weeks, you're going to see us do something that we haven't really done in the past. But the reason we're doing it is because the book of Revelation says that when you read this book, it is a book that should be read aloud. And so since the Bible, Bible tells us that we should read the book of Revelation aloud, we're going to read the Revela- book of Revelation aloud every week. So every week, somebody's going to come up, they're going to stand up, they're going to read the passage that we'll be going through. That'll be a new add to our service during this time. And so that's kind of what you were seeing there. Um, if you have not listened to last week, I'm going to encourage you to go back and listen to last week. Last week was our very first uh, week in this book, and uh, I, I think it really is, just sets itself up each week for where we're at. And so this week we're going to be in Revelations chapter 1, 2, and 3, and we're going to do something kind of different. The way that the book of Revelation sets itself up is there's going to be a lot of information, and then on the back side I'm going to give you two or three things, okay? So that's how we're going to set up the book of Revelation, and so anyway... So there's some things that, we came, that came out of last week, and they're real important to the book. And so we just want to reemphasize them. The very first thing is this, that oftentimes people um, are afraid to read the book of Revelation because it's kind of scary, kind of like, oh my gosh, holy smokes. And if you grew up in church in the, in the 80s and 90s and even like the 2000s, like, like that was like... Uh, get your life right, Jesus is coming back, or you're going to die and go to hell. Come on, that's what it was taught like. That was how it was taught. And really what you see when you read the book of Revelation is the book of Revelation is this book filled with hope. It is a book that was written to seven churches, and it was written to encourage the church. And it's written as this book of hope of, of, hey, you know, you know that Jesus wins. You know Jesus wins, right? Like, that's the hope. You know Jesus wins. You know that no matter what struggle you go through, you know that God overcomes that, that Jesus wins, Jesus wins, Jesus wins. And the reason this is real important is because at this particular time, the first century church had gone through brutal, brutal persecution. Not not like, hey, you can't go to church for five weeks persecution, but 45 years of persecution, 45 years of having friends and family members crucified. 45 years of having people that you knew personally end up in Colosseums and being fed to lions. 45 years of hunger and starvation, all because of the name of Jesus. 45 years. And so when Jesus shows up on the island, the island of Patmos and uh, encounters John the disciple in a vision... It is literally this vision that says, John, tell the seven churches we win. John, tell the seven churches, tell the seven churches to be encouraged. Tell the seven churches to have hope. Don't give up your hope. And so when we read this book, we can never get away. We can never get away from the idea that the book of Revelation is a book about hope. It's a book about encouragement. 
Here's the second thing that we have to remember. That the book of Revelation was a letter. It was a letter, just like uh, when, when Paul wrote to the, to the church of Galatia or Ephesia, uh, Ephesus, that when he wrote to these churches, he was writing them a letter. He was writing them a letter because he knew them personally. He, he was writing a letter to, to friends and people that he knew, and he's writing them a letter. And so the very first thing that the book of Revelation is, it's a book of encouragement, but it's also a book or a letter that was written to people that were friends. They were friends of Paul. He's writing to encourage them. And as a letter, it's also a letter of prophecy. It's it's this, this interesting piece that's talking about what's going on and what's gonna happen. And so, so Paul is writing to the churches, and he's saying, these are the things that are going on, and these are the things that God showed me are to come, right? And so it's both. It's a letter, and it's a, it's a letter of prophecy. And it's, it's a letter that when, when we have a prophetic word, a prophetic word is always to help us understand what's coming so that we're able to handle it in such a way that honors God. You guys get that, right? Like, it's not this scary thing of like, holy smokes, the world's coming to an end. Do you know what the book of Revelation is actually talking about when it says, when it talks about the world's coming to an end? It's literally Jesus prophesying that the end is coming. And it's the end of the reign of Satan. It's the end of the reign of of Satan having his way in your life. That day is coming, that there is a day coming, and it is the end, but it's not the end of the kingdom of God, and it's not the end of your life. It's the end of when Satan gets to do whatever he wants to whomever he wants. That day's coming, and you and I are to be prepared for that day. And so it's an apocalyptic letter. It's talking about the end, and it's talking about the end of Satan's rule and the the continuation of God's reign. And so when Paul or when John writes this letter, he's literally writing this letter in a Greek style. And so that's why we have all kinds of dragons and that's why we have all kinds of scary images because he's literally writing it in a Greek style which would be almost like a Greek mythology. And he's literally writing it in that style because his job is to take the gospel to the whole world. And at this time, That's the style that was being taken to the whole world. And so you have it. It's a letter. It's a book of hope. It's a book of encouragement. And then you have to remember this. As we go through this, you have to remember that this particular letter was written to a particular group of people. Seven churches. The seven churches of Asia. The seven churches of Asia would not be the Asia that we think about today. Today, when you think about Asia, you think about China and you think about maybe Taiwan or Thailand or, or maybe you think about Vietnam or you kind of think of Myanmar and you think about that as being kind of Asia. At this particular time in the first century, Asia was this little group, and we're going to see it in just a second. I have a map in a second. We'll show it to you. It was this little area that was above Jerusalem and yet not quite to Rome. And it was, there were seven churches that it were in that province that was very, very important to the church. There were more churches than seven churches, but Jesus shows up and he says, John, I want you to give this letter to those churches, right? So, so at this point in time, is it a letter? Yes. Is it a book of prophecy? Yes. Is it, is it, to, uh, is it to us? Yes. 
but it was written for them. So, so when we read it, we read it as a book that we get to read for us, but it was written to them. It, it's so weird when people do this thing. And the church does this thing with this book. I don't know, have you ever been around someone who takes a conversation and acts like you had the conversation with them? And you didn't really have it with them. They just kind of find out about that conversation. And then pretty soon they're having a conversation like they were there and like this was to them. And you're like, whoa, 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 that, that conversation was not to you. That conversation was to you. And you just happened to be there kind of listening in. And so here's the weird thing that we do with this particular book oftentimes. Is we act like it was written to us. It wasn't written to us. It was written for us. All right? For us. That's completely different. It's written for us. It's written for us to understand what God's speaking. It's written for us, and we get to look into it. But it was written to them. And so this is why this is real important. Because when it comes to for us versus to us, it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. That the book was written to the seven churches, so we have to pay attention to what it meant to them. And it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. So I personally don't believe that when you read about the locusts in the book of Revelation, that, that um, somehow John is seeing Apache helicopters and he just didn't know how else to describe it. Like, I just don't think so. Right? Or I don't also think that when, when John sees a scorpion and he sees the scorpion in the tell, that somehow he saw a nuclear bomb and he just didn't know how to describe it. So he described it in his first century kind of way. Right? Here, here's why that's super important. Because how weird would it be for God to come along and write a letter to a group of people and say, hey, guess what? Hope's on the way. If you just wait 2,000 years, it's going to come. Come on, that would be like terrible, right? Anybody else think that would be terrible? Hey, one of these days, one of these days I'm coming and I'm going to help you. Like in 2,000 years. No, no, no. These people were going through extreme, extreme persecution. They were going through extreme persecution. Their life's were difficult. They were incredibly painful. They were really, really hard. And Jesus shows up to say, don't abandon your faith. Don't abandon your faith. I'm not coming to help you in 2,000 years. I'm coming as hope right now. That hope comes right now. And so there's this moment that church be, that, that, um, Jesus begins to address these, these churches. And before we get there, here's the other thing that I think is super interesting about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that starts with a promise and ends with a warning. It starts with a promise. It says this in Revelations 1-3. It says, God blesses the one who reads these words of prophecy to the church. And he blesses all who listen to its message and obeys what it says. For the time is near. And then it ends in, verse, in chapter 22, 18, and it ends with a warning. And it says, And I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the words of prophecy written in this book, if anyone adds anything to what, they, what were written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. 
that's, that's a bad, that's a bad warning. That's bad. And he says, and if anyone removes any of the words from this book of prophecy, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life in the holy city that are described in this book. And so as I was studying, I came across this quote from a, a gentleman named Daryl Johnson. Daryl Johnson wrote um, Discipleship on the Edge. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal book on the book of Revelation, phenomenal theological book. He said this. He says, if it ever became illegal in my part of the world, as it actually is in other places at this very moment, to own a complete copy of the Bible. And if the authorities, as an act of mercy, allowed me to possess just one book of the Bible for my personal use, I would without hesitation keep the last. I would keep the book of Revelation. Why? Because no other book of the Bible presents the gospel as powerful as the last one does. No other book of the Bible, in the face of all that threatens to undo us, proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ the way the last book does. More particularly, in no other book of the Bible do we see Jesus as clearly and compellingly as we do in the last book. I'm convinced that no other book helps us to see Jesus as he is right now, as clearly and compellingly as the last book John wrote. You see, I believe that that's true. You see, I, I believe that there's this thing that we're going to cover today. And, and, and remember, we said that like, it just starts off slow. We start off slow. We start off slow. Jesus addresses the seven churches of Asia. And he does so because they're falling apart. They've been under persecution for 45 years. Brutal persecution for 45 years. And they begin to respond to their persecution and literally... When Jesus shows up, he begins to address like things that he's saying, hey, don't do that. I don't know if you've ever had a hard time in your life. Yeah. I'm guessing we all have. I'm guessing we've all had moments that we would look back and we would look to a season of our life and we'd say, man, that was hard. Man, that was difficult. And here's the most interesting thing, that when you go into a time and season in your life when it's difficult, the average person often doesn't respond the way that they wish they would. It's interesting when people go through a hard time. And it's interesting how when Satan attacks you in a certain area of your life, maybe it's a marriage, maybe it's a divorce, maybe it's um, a sickness, maybe it's uh, a loss of a job, maybe it's family attacking family, or, or maybe it's um, you, you, you find yourself in a financial bankruptcy situation where you can't pay your bills. And it's one of these things that happens that all people go through some type of hardship in their life. And so oftentimes when you go through a hardship in your life, so oftentimes there's these moments where you go, oh, I wish I wouldn't have responded that way. I wish I wouldn't have done that. I wish I wouldn't have used alcohol as my vice. I wish I wouldn't have been such an angry father or an angry um, husband or an angry spouse. I wish I wouldn't have got caught in compromise and lying. And so when Jesus shows up to the seven churches, he's showing up because they're not responding well. They're not responding well. And it literally says that Jesus shows up to the seven churches and he stands right in the midst of them. 
And he doesn't stand right in the midst of them to condemn them. He literally stands right in the midst of them to say, I've got you. It's going to be okay. I've got you. Like right now, right here in everything you're going through, you need to know I got you. I love in verse 12, it says, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was the one like the Son of Man. He's saying, I heard this voice, and I saw the seven churches, and when I looked at the seven churches, all of a sudden, I heard this voice, and then I turned, and it was Jesus. And he was right in the middle of his churches. And so then, as he ends up in the middle of his churches, he begins to talk to them about each one of them, about their, their struggles. And so here's what I want you to catch this morning. That we're going to talk for just a minute about each one of their ch- the church's struggles. But just as this was written to them, it's written for us. And I really do believe that as we go through these um, seven churches, you're going to find an area where Jesus would speak to you and say, hey, listen, would you pay attention to that? Because although that was written to that church 2,000 years ago, I'm seeing you exhibit that in your life. I'm seeing you exhibit that. And so if you can bring the map up of the seven churches of Asia, you're going to see that, that, that Asia sits just, just a little bit um, um, from um, Rome. And, and, and so you're going to see that it goes over by Galatia and, and it goes down to Syria and Judea and Jerusalem and Egypt. And so Paul, in his journey, he began to work his way up out of uh, Jerusalem where, where Judea is. He began to work his way up around Syria and Sicilia, and he just began to plant church after church after church after church after church. And so when we get into the area of Asia, that Paul is the father of almost every one of these churches. He was the church planter of almost every one of these churches. And so so he addresses the first church in the first church of Ephesus that Jesus says to the church of Ephesus, he says, Ephesus, you lost your love for me. That in the middle of persecution, What Satan took from you was your love for me. Here's the fascinating part about the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus couldn't have better pastors. That it had the best pastors of any church in the history of church even today. It started with Paul as the apostle Paul was the person who found the church of Ephesus. He was there almost three years. And when he was done, he passed it to Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla are saints in the history of the gospel. It's a husband and wife team, and they pastored this church, and they were rock star pastors. And then they passed it on to a man named Apollos. And Apollos was a theologian like nobody's business. Like Apollos, he, uh, he understood the gospel, and he understood scripture, and Apollos was this great, great pastor. As a matter of fact, when Paul writes back to the church of Ephesus, he says, some say that Paul was my, was my father, and others say Apollos was my father. And so he was literally such a great pastor that, that people were trying to pick, well, do I follow Paul or do I follow Apollos? Because they're both good. And then Paul, Apollos turned it over to Timothy. And Timothy turns it over to John, the disciple. And John, the disciple, when he comes to be the pastor of the church, do you know who he brings with him? Mary, mother of Jesus. Can you even imagine a Christmas Eve service with Mary, the mother of Jesus, in it? 
we were all laughing on staff of being like, what would that be like? You know, Joni gets up and sings, Mary, did you know? And then Mary sends back, yes, I knew. You know, but here, here's the point. I don't care how good your pastor is. You can still let your faith die. He's literally saying, it is not the pastor's job to keep your faith alive. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. And Jesus shows up to the church of Ephesus and he says, you let your faith die. You let your love for me die. You had the best preaching. You had the best pastors. You had, you had it all that any good church would want. And still you let your faith die. And then he turns to the church of Smyrna. And the church of Smyrna is known as the persecuted church. And the church of Smyrna was known as the persecuted church is because they just had person after person after person after person after person in their church be crucified and be thrown to the lions. And, and, and in just they came as a church. They just kept going through persecution like the other churches had persecution, but they had the type of persecution where you're like, I cannot believe that another bad thing happened to that person's life. I don't know if you've ever known somebody like that, that they just keep going through horrific circumstance, horrific circumstance, and horrific circumstance. And the harder it got for them, the better their faith did. And he turns to the church of Smyrna, and he looks at them and says, good job. Way to not let your faith die in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trial. Way to not let your faith die. Way to be a living proof that in spite of hard things, you can still hang on to your faith. That you don't have to give up and give up, or give up just because things get difficult. And then he turned to the church of Sardis, and he just turned to the church of Sardis, and he kind of just kind of looked at them and said, what are you doing? Like, you guys let your faith die. They're known as the spiritually dead church. It's the weirdest thing that this happens all the time, that people, like, they still come to church, like on Sunday, they still get ready. They still wake up. It's Sunday morning, so they go to church. They still listen to Christian radio. And there's nothing going on in their life spiritually. The lights are literally on, but nobody's home. They don't pray. They don't read their Bible. They probably even still bring their Bible with them when they come. That this whole thing has become such a habit. But there literally is no spiritual life going on inside them. They're not praying. They're not reading scripture. They're, they're listening to music. But they're not moved by acts of compassion. As a matter of fact, what happened to the church of Sardis is they really just became a club. They gathered on Sundays. And so nobody wanted to stop gathering, and they had somebody teaching scriptural stuff, but there was nothing going on in their life that looked like Jesus. And he looked at him and he said, Sardis, you died. You spiritually died. And then he looks at the church of Pergamon. And he says, church, you've compromised your beliefs. You've compromised your beliefs. You still know scripture, but you're the church that has given into compromise. That 
you no longer believe in the one true God. You've come to the idea that there's many gods. It could be Zeus or it could be a Middle Eastern god like Bel. But he says, you've become intolerant of believing in truth. That you've become so tolerant of other things that you've become intolerant of believing and standing on the truth of God. He says, you look good to your community, but inside you're just full of compromise. You're wishy-washy. There's nothing really going on in your life. You see, while we are to be inclusive of people, we are supposed to be exclusive to God. You understand that, right? We believe in the one true God. We believe in Scripture. We are sold out to God the Father. Worship the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. We believe in inclusiveness to people, but we are exclusive in our desire and pursuit of Jesus. And then he says to the church of Thyatira, he says, you lost your way. You became corrupt. He says, you have a Sunday face and you have a Monday face. He says, the problem is, is that the people at church think that you follow Jesus and the people at work have no idea that you do. He says, when you walk out of your church, he says, and you walk into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, he says, the worlds do not, they do not exist together. That the people of Thyatira, that they would worship Jesus on Sunday and cheat you on Monday. They would worship Jesus on Sunday and they would sell trinkets on Monday. That they had become very, very wealthy in their community. And they actually didn't have a lot of persecution because they actually didn't look a lot like the church. They actually looked a lot like the other synagogues or the other places of worship in their community. And they would sell trinkets, and, and you could buy yourself uh, little potions that would, that would heal people. And, and they had stopped being the church. And then he turns to the church of Laodicea. And he says, church, you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. Nobody knows what you believe. Laodicea was interesting because in Laodicea, they were known for their pools, almost kind of like a Glenwood Springs, right? They were known for their pools, and so they had both these really beautiful cold water pools, and they had these beautiful hot water pools. And the church of Laodicea tried to take those pools and tried to integrate them into their church, and they could never, ever figure it out. They could never get it just right. And so their water in their church was always lukewarm. They were always lukewarm. And God took that image of what they were trying to create in their church between these two different pools and trying to push them together. And he says, you became exactly what you have tried to become. You became lukewarm. Nobody knows what you believe. And then finally he looks at the church of Philadelphia. And he says, but you, Philadelphia, you have become faithful. That in persecution, that you faithfully faithfully stood on God's word. You faithfully, faithfully, faithfully did the work. That you're faithful people. And you know what the difference is between a faithful person and an unfaithful person? A faithful person is a settled person. 
A faithful person isn't trying to figure out what they believe. A faithful person has, um, uh, has resolved because they've resolved what they believe. I love that Peter wrote to the church, and he, he wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 5. He said, stay alert, watch out, for the, your great enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He said, stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. And remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering that you are. You see, there's this moment that as Jesus addresses these churches, you need to catch this. He does not, catch, he does not address these churches and address their sin to condemn them. He's actually addressing their sin to win them. You need to catch that. Jesus doesn't address their sin to condemn them. He's actually addressing their sin to win them. And, and he's doing so, and he's doing so in this way that he's, he's literally, he's saying, he's saying, you need to address this in your life because if you don't address it right now, it'll take you out. That whatever I reveal is not condemnation. I'm actually trying to show you that the enemy's trying to take you out. That if you've, fallen into a habit of, of being knowledgeable but spiritually cold, that'll take you out. You see, I think there's three schemes real quick that I believe that happens to most churches that, ha that Satan uses in so many churches. And the first is that you can be a, a biblically knowledgeable church but a spiritually cold church. Have you ever been around people like that? They know a lot about Jesus but they don't know the compassion of Jesus. They know a lot about Jesus, but they don't know the mercies of Jesus. They know what God believe, well, they know what God believes and what God teaches, but they don't ever show up with cold water. Does that make sense? You see, as Christians, we're not just supposed to be knowledgeable about God's word. We're supposed to be transformed by it. The Spirit of God is supposed to guide us. The Word of God is supposed to inform us. We're supposed to be, um, have good doctrine and good practice. We're supposed to have good theology and great compassion. Not just good attendance and bad patience. You see, here's the second thing that I believe that happens in churches, is way too often uh, churches become spiritually aware um, but spiritually indifferent. And what I mean by that is that you can be spiritually aware of God but very indifferent to it. I, I think this is oftentimes where we see the American church, that these type of churches have stopped pursuing spiritual things. We've been lulled to sleep by life we fall way too easily for Netflix binging. Way too easily for flipping Facebook, Instagram, Reels. You know, an hour and a half later when you were supposed to take out the trash. And my wife says, are you going to take out the trash? Yeah, I just need to watch three more Reels. You know, maybe that doesn't happen in your house. But it's this thing of how life causes us to become apathetic. Like life becomes so like easy to just like just work your way through it that you've stopped pursuing God at a level that you used to pursue God. I can remember when I gave my life to Jesus. 
I was 17. I grew up in this church. I, my friend Stella here, I was just talking to Stella just a second ago, and uh, Stella's a friend that uh, I can remember that she used to kind of mama me whenever I was a kid. And I said, Stella, when did your family start coming to this church? She goes, 1953. This church has had this heritage. Like right here, middle of downtown Grand Junction, this church has just been here for 90 years, just proclaiming the gospel, just proclaiming the gospel, just proclaiming the gospel. Sometimes what happens if you've had a long history of the gospel in your life, it's easy to just take for granted the things that God has done in your life. It's easy to forget the things that God has done in your life. And Jesus is literally standing in the midst of the church saying, don't forget Paul writes to the church of Rome. He says, don't copy the behaviors and the customs of the world. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. Peter writes to the church. He says, do you not understand that Scripture says, be holy? Because I am holy. You see, I believe there's a last thing that happens in the church. And I believe that sometimes what happens in the church is that believers get spiritually weary and they just fall away. And what I mean by that is this. When you've endured lots of persecution, when you've gone through lots of hard stuff, sometimes you just get tired Sometimes there's this temptation when you go through that kind of thing to just allow trauma and allow tragedy and allow disappointment to seep into your heart at such a level that you stop pursuing Jesus. Here's why this is really important. When Jesus shows up to the churches of Asia, he's literally showing up to say, don't give up. Don't give up. You see, this is important because with each church, as he says, hey, this is your struggle, he tells all of the churches the very same thing. Do you know how you overcome your struggle? You remember, you repent, and you return. That's the path for all seven churches. That's the path back for all seven churches. Remember, repent, return. Remember what God did for you. Remember what Jesus did for you. Remember how God has worked in your life. Remember the promises of Scripture. Remember, remember, remember. And if at any level of your life you have grown cold, you've compromised, you've abandoned, you've grown lukewarm, then for God's sake, repent. Repent. And return. Repent and return. Repent for the things and the ways that you've allowed the enemy to steal your faith. Repent and return. Now you gotta catch this. You gotta catch this. This is a book of love. This is a book of encouragement. And what's really going on, because we're gonna get into some stuff, we're gonna get into some crazy stuff. The, the first century of church, 45 years of persecution. And John, when he, when he gives them this letter, he's saying, hey, just so you know, 
it's still on. It's still on. Satan's still coming. The attacks are still coming. Persecution's still coming. And here, here's why. This thing's so fascinating that Jesus addresses the churches in the very beginning. Because he says, if you can't handle this, you're going to struggle to handle this. If this stole your faith, this is going to wipe out your faith. And the only hope you have is to repent and to return to Jesus and remember his goodness. Remember his faithfulness. Remember that he promises to never leave you. Remember that he promises not to abandon you. And remember that there is a day, there is a day when Satan's rule is no more. There is a day when God's kingdom wins. So don't give up. Don't let Satan steal from you your faith. Repent. Return. Remember. So I've asked our worship team to come up. And I'm just saying that today's one of those days. We always handle this a little bit differently. But today is between you and the Lord. We're going to close with a couple songs. And it's between you and the Lord. But if you have things that you could look in your life and you can say, hey, I have grown apathetic. Hey, I have let life lull me to sleep. Hey, I can look up and I, I've got areas I've been compromising in. Hey, I've grown cold because of all the difficulties of my life. That whatever that is, that today would be a day of repentance. And today would be a day of remembering that God has shown up to say, hey, I'm with you. I've got you. Don't give up on your faith. So we're going to worship. If you need to find somewhere to get on your hands and knees and pray, do that. If you want to um, come down and take communion. If you want to pray with one of our ministry team um, members, we would love to pray with you. But whatever that looks like for the next seven, eight, ten minutes, I've asked the worship team to just load a couple songs. And so they're going to do one, and then I'm going to come back up, and I'm going to close this out in prayer. But today's a day where you take your faith and you say, Lord, I need you. I need you. You know, as Jesus shows up to the seven churches, and he starts to point things out, it's because he wants the best for them. You know, so many times we feel like when God points things out in our life, oftentimes the really reaction is, is because so many times we're filled with shame for the things that we're doing with our lives. We feel like it's condemnation, and it's really not. It's really an act of love. It's really God saying, hey, listen, if you don't take care of these things, the enemy will take you out. He says, but... I want to I see you make it to the end. There's this passage that I particularly like, and I particularly like it because it's written to a pastor. So in 2 Timothy, uh, in 1 Timothy, um, Timothy takes over the church that Paul planted, the church of Ephesus. He takes over that church, and he's their pastor. And he takes over when he's 19 years old. He's young, right? And when he's young, the first letter is this letter of, of Paul writing to Timothy about here's how you pastor a church and tells him here's how, here's how it works. And somewhere between the first letter and the second letter, there's this moment in Timothy's like where he's just done. 
He's like, pastoring people's hard. And taking care of others will steal your faith. And he literally, his faith is run out. He's about 26 when the letter, second letter shows up. And Paul writes to Timothy. He says, Timothy, this is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift, the spiritual gifts God has given you. When I laid my hands on you, for God has not given you a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. And there's this moment in Timothy's life where he had lost his faith. He was afraid. He was getting beat up all the time. And Paul comes along as an elder and just says, hey, stop it. Fan the flame, man. Fan the flame of your faith. Remember, repent, return. Fan the flame of your faith. Don't let the enemy take you out. Let's see this thing through the end. So, Lord, we come before you right now. And we just come before you and say, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that you stand right in the middle of our churches, that you don't give up on our churches, that you stand with us. And Lord, that you call us not to compromise. You call us not to be lukewarm. You call us not to give up, not to become more like our community than our Father. And so today, Lord, we confess as a church that we want to live lives that honor you. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and share it with your friends. If you find this tool valuable and would like to support this ministry, you can do so easily through our DTV app or on our website, dtvchurch.org forward slash give. God bless you and have a great rest of your week.